I'm reading from Luke 2. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. We gather today for unde- we get we sorry. We gather today desperate for undeterred joy, joy that is rooted in the very heart of grace. At times we can be easily overwhelmed as we navigate life in a world full of discouragement. Yet even when things do not go as we plan, joy remains. Because grace remains, because Jesus came. We rejoice today as recipients of an everlasting, unexpected joy that comes from God alone. Joy that cannot be deterred by our present circumstances. And in Philippians, we rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And in Romans it says, and again Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jean. Thank you, Carol. We appreciate so much your willingness to help set our hearts to the right thing this morning. I don't know about you, but I heard in that we've been commanded to rejoice, church, right, with our mouths. The interesting thing is um, we sing about the angels singing, but I think the Bible really says they're just saying, which tells me it's okay if you're tone deaf and can't match our pitch, you know? (laughs) It's all right, because you've been commanded to rejoice even if you're just saying it, right? So like I always do, I wanna encourage you as we sing through Christmas carols that might sound familiar to your ears and might just kind of roll off your tongue easily, I wanna encourage you to think about what we're saying. Angels, we've heard on high, sweetly singing over the plains in the mountains, in reply, echoing their joyous strains. Now, unless you've been to Latin class, maybe you just sing the Gloria in Excelsis Deo and you're like, what are we singing? Maybe maybe a lot of people know, I don't know, but I'll tell you for those who don't know, the Latin there is glory to God in the highest. Excelsis, Excelsis, Google tells me it doesn't really matter which one we say there, right? Just to be exalted, to lift up, magnify, lift high the name of the Lord. Have you come to do that this morning, church? 
Amen. I hope so. Would you go ahead and stand and I'm going to pray for us before we sing. God, we have come here to lift high your name. And God, in a season like this, there can be a lot of distractions. But I pray that right here and now in this place, you would help all of the elements, Lord, to just point to you, God. May, as we sing, may we truly in our heart of hearts lift high your name. Glory to God in the highest. Lord, would you hear our praise now, and may it be pleasing to you. In your son's name we pray.
you my favorite part of that song that we just sang is let every heart what prepare him room <laughs> I think that's a question we ask this morning have we made room in our hearts to let him come in and do what he will it is a question because there's part of this that's our choice right and whatever we've come in with are we willing to lay it down at the altar and make room for the king of kings and the Lord of Lords. We're going to continue singing this morning. Um, man, isn't, isn't the story of Christmas just in all of our worship songs? <laughs> I love that. I love that. So this might not be your traditional Christmas song, but man, does it ever point to this baby that came in a manger. Let's worship, worship him this morning. Throne of endless glory. 
if you will. God, you are a good God. And we have declared that this morning as a body with our mouths, Lord, and, and hopefully with our hearts as well. God, we've sung about making room for you in our hearts, and we've sung about your joy. And um, God, I just ask that you would continue to be in this place. Would you continue to make us aware of your presence here? your life-changing presence, your presence that brings transformation to us. God, I ask that you would be with uh, Brian as he comes and, and delivers the word that you've laid on his heart, God, and I, I just ask that you'd help him to just showcase your glory and the majesty of who you are and all that he says, and may we hear from your spirit, Lord. May we leave this place changed because of meeting with you and your son's precious and holy name that we get to pray this. Amen. Good to see you this morning. Thank you for not running when you heard that I was going to be up here. <laughs> Don't know how much warning you got, but <laughs> it's good to be with you during this Christmas season. I absolutely love Christmas. Uh, it is probably my most favorite time of the year, most favorite time to be with family and to do things with family and to, to experience tradition and to honor tradition and especially Advent, the idea of the coming of Christ into our world. Um, we're going to be kind of in various places in Scripture this morning. If you're looking for a reference, um, I think probably the best place would be the book of Matthew, if we start the book of Matthew. Chapter 1, and we're going to jump back and forth from chapter 1 to chapter 5. Uh, but I'd just ask if you give me a brief moment. Um, uh, as I was preparing, I just happened to be, maybe this isn't the thing you wanted to hear, I happened to be on Facebook as I was preparing my message. <laughs> I happened to jump over to Facebook one point this week. And um, a very influential person in my life, um, some of you might know the name of Tachif from Mount Vernon Nazarene University. Uh, Diana Tachif is probably one of the most amazing human beings I've ever met. Um, she's the wife of the choral director, music director at Mount Vernon. She wrote a prayer earlier this week that I, if you don't mind, I know we've prayed, but I would just kind of like to start our message this morning with this prayer. If I could read this to you, if you want to close your eyes, that's fine if not, but let me just read this prayer uh, for us this morning as we get into this morning's message. Diana wrote that this morning we pray for the one today who feels like they cannot take one more thing. Lord, their arms are full, their mind is full, and their emotions are overflowing. They need rest. This morning, Lord, you hear their cry help. You hear them as they ask for something to give. Lord, you meet them even here. You meet them in these moments of being overwhelmed. Give their heart the chance to breathe. Help them find a moment of rest amongst all the demands. Meet them with exactly what they need. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for letting me read that this morning. Uh, let me ask this question. How many of you are old enough to remember the J.C. Penney's Christmas catalog? Anyone? Okay, I know I'm dating myself, but young people look around. Hold your hands up just so I'm not over. Okay, ladies and gents, all of us do. The JCPenney's Christmas catalog, long before Google or the interwebs or Amazon, when this thing arrived at your house, how many of you recognize this image from your childhood? When this thing arrived at your house, all six inches of glossy encyclopedic shopping, you knew Christmas was here. Now, JCPenney's, I'm not going to go into the history of it. They put out catalogs all year long, um, and, and they had all the... See, and it, like, I'm talking to my own kids who are like, you mean there's a catalog with stuff in it? Yeah, it's before you could go online and look at everything somebody offered. Every single item they sold practically was in this catalog, and at Christmas, they really overdid it. They put all kinds of stuff out. 
And that was how you looked and saw the things that you were interested in, right? Like, you looked through this. I mean, and it wasn't just for kids. Like, my mom would leaf through the JCPenney's catalog. When the Christmas catalog came, you knew it was time to get excited, right? <laughs> and my sister and I would fight over this thing. We would grab it and hide it from each other so that we could look, and we'd flip page after page. We would look at every single toy they offered. I've got some images from the 1992 JCPenney Christmas catalog. I don't know if you can see these. Yeah, original Star Wars stuff, uh, Masters of the Universe, uh, Marvel before Disney owned them, right? Okay? Like, all the toys. And we would go through with Sharpie markers, and we would meticulously circle which item we wanted. I would circle in blue because I'm a boy, and my sister would circle in red. Not like my parents even you know, needed to know, right? But we would go through this thing and pour over it and mark the pages. We were legitimately ridiculous. I'm sorry, but we were. That was ridiculous. That's what we did. But Christmas was the JCPenney's Christmas catalog. The older we got, the more we transitioned from toys to, to clothing, how many of you have had teenagers who've done that? You know, less toys, more clothes. Yeah, yeah. And believe it or not, the JCPenney's catalog had clothing in it. In fact, that's what it had more of. And we would leaf through the clothing choices and, oh, that looks cool. Maybe my friends will think I'm cool if I wear that. You know, maybe I'll buy that pair of jeans. So much so that as we circled things, we kind of started to notice that the models, I don't know if we can call them that, the individuals who would model the clothing in the JCPenney's catalogs, how many of you felt when you looked at those that they were the most ridiculous people you ever saw in your life? Yeah, take a look at this image, please, if you would. Um, the, the, the Christmas catalog models would wear the clothes, but the looks on their faces were the most ridiculous things. In fact, um, we got in the habit on Christmas morning, my mom would make my sister and I try the clothes on. How many of you lived in one of those families? As soon as you unwrap them, you climb on, right, yeah. Try on this pair of pants, now with this shirt, now with this sweater, now, I mean, like, over and over again. When my sister and I got fed up with it, we would start what we had secretly called the pennies pose. <laughs> Are you ready? We'd come out and, you know, <laughs> right? You know, or the one that we loved the most, one, of the, one hand on the shoulder, you know, the fake laugh, you know? <laughs> Stephanie, do you mind displaying? I just want to make sure that no one thinks. Yeah, here we go. Yeah, right. You know, paid actors, actresses, models to wear the clothing and to look as blank as possible, right? This wasn't real. The, the smile wasn't real. The smile wasn't uh, what was selling the product. It was wearing the product. But the J.C. Penney's pose, that phrase is still a big part of my family today. I'm 44 years old. We did Christmas with my family over Thanksgiving. And my mom asked me, hey, do you remember the Penney's pose? I said, are you kidding we came up with it. Are you having me try a shirt on? You mean, what do you want? You mean, do you know? The pennies pose. I absolutely love Christmas, and so don't take the pennies pose as being some sort of indictment on this next thing I'm going to say. But I think at the Christmas season, we surround ourselves with so many icons and so many images and so many symbols of Christmas um, that I think sometimes the true meaning can become a little bit diluted or lost on us. Um, and this really struck me a couple weeks ago as we were decorating in our house. How many of you are familiar with the willow tree uh, set, the nativity, and I mean, they do all kinds of things, but uh, we have a willow tree nativity set that has been our pride and joy uh, for the last 20 years. Every year, um, the kids or I have tried to purchase a piece for Holly, and you know, it went from just being Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus to, you know, uh, somebody asked me one Christmas, what'd you get Holly? And I wasn't thinking, I said, oh, a cow, you know, I really meant you know, the willow tree, you know, not a real cow, you know. <laughs> But we've built our setup, and so now it takes up our entire mantle of our fireplace. And this thing has been through all kinds of weather and storms. You know, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but they're not impact-resistant. And when they fall off a mantle, they break. And, you know, we've super-glued them and all of them. But I was sitting on the couch the other day in a very rare moment, 
The kids are out of the house. I think Holly was still running around doing something. Just sitting on the couch, no TV, no screens on, looking at our mantle and looking at the nativity and really appreciating it for what it was. And the thought struck me as I stared at our nativity, and I, don't, I wasn't trying to be critical or judgmental, but the, the thought struck me. I thought, I wonder, and I was focused on Joseph and Mary and the baby. I thought, I wonder if that's really what they looked like. Like, was Joseph's back really that straight as he stood next to Mary? And again, not trying to be critical, but the more I looked at this nativity set, the more I felt that there was a little bit more of a J.C. Penney's pose to it than maybe what I was comfortable with. Does that make sense? Does that translate? Uh, for instance, if you'll just look at this image, if you don't mind, you know, this is, this is not ours. I did not steal this from our house. You need to take a picture of it. But, you know, this, this scene here, Joseph back straight, you know, clothes look nice, hand hovering over the head of the baby, you know, Mary sitting up much taller than I would expect any woman to be sitting up after labor. You know, I, I just thought, is this accurate? And then I got to thinking about uh, when our daughters were born, and I was nowhere close to being uh, that uh, uh, upright, um, worried about the process and the procedure, uh, you know, uh, concerned for Holly, uh, 27 hours of labor with Kennedy, and we'd been up for all of it, and, and, you know, going through this whole thing and making sure that the baby was okay and the doctors and my mind is filled with so much stuff. I'm going to tell you right now, if I had a staff, I would have not been holding it, you know, ornamentally. I'd have been hanging on to that thing for dear life, you know, and hoping somebody was holding on the other end. And I wasn't even the one giving labor. You were doing, you know, like that wasn't my job. I was just there, right? And I just got to thinking, do we sometimes see this image and not get the full picture of maybe what Christmas and Advent and Christ's birth was really looking like? I'd like to read for us today from the book of Matthew. We're going to talk about um, the, this, this story. And I would like to approach the, this view today from Joseph's point of view. Um, of the three in the nativity, the three main people in the nativity, I feel like I can speak most accurately from Joseph's point of view, the view of, of the dad. And so let's read together today. We're going to start. I'm going to start at verse 18. I think on the, on the screen we have starting at verse 20. But Matthew 1.18 says this. This is how the birth... Um, sorry. 18, I'm not sure if it's chapter 1, please forgive me. Uh, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the prophet Isaiah. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think about what Joseph might have thought in that moment that the angel speaks to him. Um, if we understand the, the, the chronological order, he and Mary were, were married. And I don't know how familiar you are with Jewish custom, but in Jewish custom back in these days, when you were married to someone, you actually spent the first year living apart. Um, they were promised to each other. They were officially married to each other. They would be considered a married couple in Jewish custom. But Mary would have stayed with her parents for a year, roughly, and Joseph would have basically lived in his own home and prepared, or maybe he was living somebody else, but he was preparing a home for the both of them. 
And so it was in this time that the Bible tells us that in this year period before they're actually living together as what we would consider husband and wife, but the Jewish custom says they are, that he discovers and they realize that Mary's pregnant. We know this story well. Um, Joseph, who we don't know a whole lot about, in fact, I didn't realize this until I started studying, you know that there's no recorded words that Joseph says in the Bible? Talks about them, but there's no recording of anything that he said. And I think some wives would say that's good. You know, he didn't say no. <laughs> There's nothing that's recorded for Joseph having, having said, just recordings of what he thought and recordings of what he did. And his thought process was, I want to obey the law that God has set up, but I don't want to expose Mary to public disgrace. So while we don't know a whole lot about him, we know he's a good man. He had the legal right to, I don't know if you're aware of this, he had the legal right to have her put to death for being pregnant during their marriage. He had every right to do that, and the Jews would have backed him up on that. But he quietly says to himself, I want to do the right thing. And so he quietly decides within himself to divorce her as quietly and as out of the public view as possible, as honorably as possible, when an angel of the Lord appears to him. Now, I don't know if how much you study the Word of God, but are you aware of the fact that since the old, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's about 400 years of what a lot of people would say God's silence doesn't necessarily speak directly to his people. And here's Joseph in a situation, worried, frustrated, discouraged, because life isn't going the way that he thought it was going to go. And all of a sudden, an angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and talks to him. Joseph is one of the very first people, one of the very few first humans that God breaks his silence to. And he says to him, as we just read, hey, hold off, marry her. Everything's good. What she tells you is true. She's conceived, this baby was conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's not done anything wrong. Continue to be honorable. Continue to be a man of God. Hold to the course. It's going to be okay. How many of you think that even after Joseph heard that word, those words in that dream, that his mind might still be filled with questions? Mine would. <laughs> no angel spoke to me when, when we realized that Holly was pregnant, and my mind was filled with questions, right? How in the world am I going to do this? What kind of dad am I going to be? You know, oh my gosh, what if they're girls? Because, you know, and they are, and it's amazing. You know, you know, I don't know girls. You know, wonderful, amazing. Got two beautiful girls. All the questions that came about in fatherhood. Add on top of the fact that Joseph now has questions about this son of God thing and conceived by the Holy Spirit, and now I'm going to take her as my wife, and I'm going to officially make her as my wife, but now I've got to present that to the people that we live around and all kinds of frustration, questions, discouragement. Then Joseph hears, as we proceed through month six, seven, eight, and nine, Mary is nine months pregnant, that there is a census that he's supposed to travel with his family to register, travel from where he's living in the, in the town of his ancestral birth, Bethlehem, okay? And that he's got to take his family with him. She's his family. She's his wife. She's supposed to go with him. We know that it's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. How many of you have walked 90 miles on foot and were happy about it, right? <laughs> 90 miles that they're supposed to travel, and she's in her third trimester, right? I get weirded out when we're driving to West Virginia for a trip, you know, packing the bag, bag the car right, getting the, how many of you are like jigsaw uh, packers in the back of the, yeah, yeah, it's got to be exactly right, got to make sure the, the bags are exactly where they're supposed to be. Does everybody have what they need? You know, I can see Joseph in all of this chaos, trying to do the right thing and, you know, pack the donkey right, this bag here, this bag here, let's check the tires, hooves, okay, you know, we're good in your tail, okay, yeah, yeah. Dad vibes, right? 90 miles on foot. 
Uh, studies would show that a typical, relatively healthy individual would expect about four-day journey, okay? Break it up into about you know, 15, 12-mile chunks a day. But Mary's nine months pregnant. A lot of scholars believe it took them a week and a half, a week and a half traveling on foot. Um, we see images of her on the donkey, but really, historically speaking, the donkey would have had more luggage on it than anything. He would have tried to let her ride at times, but a lot of scholars believe Mary walks this thing on foot 90 miles. They're coming out of the area of the Dead Sea, lowest place on earth, if you didn't know that. They're climbing up into the hills where Jerusalem is and where Nazareth is. One of the studies I read said that they would have been walking uphill for two days straight. Uphill. Now, I'm from West Virginia. That sounded painful, right? Two days straight, nine months pregnant, walking uphill. Discouragement, frustration, questions, discouragement, frustration, questions. Heaped upon, heaped upon, heaped upon. Does the donkey have enough food? Do we have enough food? Where are we going to find water? Where is she going to rest? Is she uncomfortable? What can I do? Are we on the same page? You follow me? Talking with Pastor Brian about preparing for this message, he brought something to my mind that I had never in 44 years considered. Joseph had a dad. Joseph most likely had brothers. Why do we envision this story of Mary and Joseph traveling by themselves? Jewish custom would have said that you go with people. You travel with people. There's thieves on the road. There's danger on the road. You don't travel by twos. You travel in the largest group you possibly can. And yet we have this vision, we have this thought of the two of them traveling alone. Where's his family? The Bible doesn't mention them. And so we could say, well, do you, we were to read between the lines. But how many of you have read the Bible before and you realize what it doesn't mention is really some of the things you're supposed to pay attention to? His dad's not with him. At least that's what we understand. His brothers and their wives and their children are not with them. They're supposed to be with a group. This would have been a family excursion that has turned into a two-person trip, and one of them is nine months pregnant. Family is one of the most difficult things in the world, would you agree? Beautiful, wonderful, complicated, difficult. Do you think that at any point on this week-and-a-half journey, Joseph had the thought to himself, where's my family? Why aren't they here to help? And maybe they were, but the possibility is that maybe they weren't. And so all of that stress and discouragement and frustration is heaped upon him. Every single time he goes to try to help, every single time he goes to try to do a routine thing on this journey, I'm sure his mind thought, if I were with others, this would be easier. If I were with others, this would be easier. Let's take it one step further. They get to Bethlehem. We know that the only room for them was where? In a manger. If they were traveling with family, do you think the family would have made manger accommodations? <laughs> I don't think so. Another point to, to consider, why aren't they with a large group? Why, do, why isn't there some house that they've rented? Or why aren't they, you know, there are tents that the family has set up on the outskirts of town? I truly think, as we study and look at this, Joseph and Mary were alone. And they were truly isolated. It was just the two of them. And so all of this frustration, all of this question, chaos, disconcertedness, discouragement is something that both of them are wearing, but as we look at Joseph's perspective, I think his is the one that I understand the most. When we think about the fact that the two of them were alone in that manger, you think that Joseph delivered his own son, and he volunteers for that? Nope. Not signing up for that. Be afraid to do it wrong. And that was a reality. Um, Joseph had heard from the angel, we know that this was a blessed birth, but the reality of uh, infant deaths and mothers dying in uh, pregnancy and labor in this day, in day and age was very, very common. I'm sure he was terrified 
as he delivered his own son in a smelly, dirty manger. Have we painted a picture well enough this morning? A lot of discouragement, a lot of questions, a lot of frustration. But you know, I think the hardest thing for Joseph as we consider this scene this morning, I think the hardest thing that, that I can imagine as a dad is not all the discouragement that Joseph felt for himself. Not the questions of why isn't this going the way I wanted it to, or why isn't this going a different way, or you know, why, why am I going through these things? I think the hardest thing for Joseph was watching Mary go everything through everything she was going through. You ever been in that boat before? You ever watched someone you love suffer? You ever watch them go through something that you are powerless to help them with? No matter how much you care or love for them, that you cannot reach into their situation and take away the thing that's frustrating them or take away the thing that's hurting them or take away the thing that they're struggling with. I can't imagine that as good of a man as Joseph was that he didn't feel that. It doesn't matter how many times he stood up in front of the town of Nazareth and said, she's my wife. He still watched her become ridiculed by the people. Do you know the Jewish law said that once he had publicly declared her as his wife, that the other Jewish people could not say anything against him? That publicly they couldn't speak against Joseph because he had made a decision, but they could heap all the insults they wanted on Mary. It doesn't matter how able and fit he was in that 90-mile journey. He can't make the road less dusty. He can't take the two days of uphill away. He can't make the seat on the donkey more comfortable for her. He can only do so much. And I think one of the biggest things that Joseph would have struggled with on this journey was watching her struggle because he couldn't take that away from her. Does that make sense? Unreal discouragement. Unreal amounts of chaos and pressure and questions about why is this happening? Why is this happening? Why is this happening? I think if we look at the real image of the nativity scene, I think we see two people who are weary I think we don't see beautiful robes. <laughs> I think we see a lot of dirt. I think we see a lot of torn knee areas of the robes. There's no pants, so I don't know what we'd call those. But I think we'd see a lot of disheveledness. I think we'd see dirt on faces. I think we would see, if you look at body language and you study body language in a group of people, I think we'd see shoulders slumped. I think we would see dejection. I think, I think we'd see Joseph holding onto that staff a lot stronger than what willow tree shows us. <laughs> I think we'd see bloody feet. I think we'd see bruised ankles. I don't think it would be as pretty as what we actually see in our nativity sets today. But you know the interesting thing about these nativity scenes that we set up? Have you ever noticed that the poorest depiction or the thing that's the hardest to interpret when we look at our own modern versions of the nativity is their faces? Do you know that Technically speaking, Willow Tree leaves the faces of the nativity individuals completely blank. Not because they didn't know what to do, but because it's meant for us to interpret what their faces would look like. And for all the J.C. Penney's pose that I think our nativity sets show us sometimes, I think the one thing that would not be in J.C. Penney's pose for these two would be their eyes. I think when we look on that scene, if we were to see the face of Mary and Joseph and baby, I think all the physical attributes that we've talked about, the difficulty, the discouragement, the stooped shoulders, the, the almost falling down with weariness, the chaos of the manger around them, I think we'd see that. But I think if we looked at their eyes, I think we would see a light and a joy there that has no explanation. 
explain to me how Joseph gets through the week and a half journey without the voice of God talking to him. Explain to me how Joseph stands in front of his town and over and over again defends his decision and his wife without the voice of God talking to him. The Bible doesn't record him losing his temper or flying off the handle. It never records him saying, that's it, I'm out, I'm done. All the discouragement that's heaped upon him, all the difficulty that's heaped upon him, something on the inside of Joseph is lifting him up. Something's carrying him. Something's pulling him through. And I'm here to tell you this morning, it's God. Joseph, as a child who studied the word Emmanuel from the prophet Isaiah, God with us, in a dream experienced, God with me. When the angel spoke to Joseph, do you understand that in his mind he would have thought, this is one of the first recorded in 400 years' times that an angel has spoken to someone, and that angel spoke to me, and what does God say? Carry through, keep going, I'll take care of you. Emmanuel is not a term for Joseph, it's a reality. God with me, God with Mary, God with Joseph, Emmanuel, God with us. And God with us doesn't take away the circumstances. It doesn't take away the journey. It didn't take away the need to go to Bethlehem. It didn't take away how difficult things were. It was a strength that came from the Lord inside out that made those things more bearable, that made those things able to be endured, that made those things something that they were willing to participate in and take part in because God had spoken to them. God was with them in the midst of some of the most difficult things that they've ever thought about or ever experienced or ever gone through in their entire life. God with us, Emmanuel. I think there might be some of us here in this room today that would say, okay, I get what you're saying, God with us. I've gone through some hard stuff, God with us. I hear what you're saying. But, you know, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I have to deal with. You don't know the discouragement that sits on my shoulders today. And the reality is, I don't. I don't know what you're going through. I can tell you personally, in my own testimony, that the past nine months in my life have been some of the most difficult nine months my family has ever been through. And that's not for effect. That's not for... (laughs) That's not for preaching icing on the cake. For the first time in my life, I know what it is to wake up in the middle of the night, heartbroken, out of a deep sleep, because I was so overwhelmed. I know what it is to watch my kids go through things that I can't take away from them. I know what it is to watch my wife go through things that I would give anything to take off her plate. If it was a task I could do to take it away from her, heck, if it was some dude I could fight, man, we're throwing down in the yard because if that took it away from her, That would help. Not possible. And I'm here to tell you this morning that there has not been a single time that I have called out to God that I wasn't answered. There's not been a single time that I've woken up in the middle of the night and called out to him and all I knew to say was help, help, that he didn't hear me, that I didn't know that he was there. It wasn't some sort of happy, bubbly feeling. It was a deep, abiding knowledge that stuck with me, that said, I am here. I am your Emmanuel. I am with you. I am walking with you. I'm walking beside you. You are not alone. And that is the joy that I've experienced. The fact of the matter is, I don't know what you're going through. But the bigger truth is, 
I don't have to know what you're going through for God to be who God is. I don't have to understand what you're going through for the truth of God's presence in our lives to be real. Heck, I don't understand what I'm going through. I can't, I can't nail down everything that I'm struggling with, but the truth is God is there. He is here. He is Emmanuel. God with us is not just some sort of prophecy told of old. God with us, Emmanuel, is someone who walks with Mary and with Joseph, and he walks with us. I could list every single one of your names today. God with you. God with us, Emmanuel. And that is a joy unspeakable. It's a joy that far supersedes any sort of emotional outpouring. I'm a southern West Virginia boy. It's a joy that isn't some sort of hanky-waving, flower-pot-breaking kind of thing. It's a joy that sticks with you. It's enduring. It holds you up. It pushes you through. It doesn't always reflect in how, how strong your shoulders look or how strong you look as you walk, but it reflects here. It's an enduring, abiding love and joy that carries us through. God with us. God with us. Maybe another way to look at this today um, is through a a set of passage in Matthew um, that I'm going to have pulled up on the screen. It's from Matthew 5, just a couple chapters after the story of Christ coming into the world. And these are Jesus' words. Um, We've been studying the Beatitudes in Dave Eichhorn's Sunday School class. And if you're looking for a class or if you're looking for some absolutely amazing biblical teaching, you need to come in that class. Dave is one of the best Bible teachers I've ever heard in my entire life. And it's interesting that just 33 years later after Jesus is born, he's standing talking to a group of people, and he says to them, blessed are you. And he lists some attributes. And in our Bibles, we read that the first thing he says is, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think sometimes we think about this concept of Emmanuel, God with us, and we read these words, poor in spirit, and we misinterpret what they say. Blessed are the poor in spirit doesn't mean... Blessed are those who are weak in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Maybe a more, if you'll allow it, it's not a Greek translation, it's a Nuric translation, if you'll allow this. It's a little more like this. Blessed are those who realize how much of me, Jesus, they need, because when they do, they have all of heaven given to them. The present inward kingdom and the future eternal one. I got to wonder if maybe some of us today need a realization of Emmanuel in our lives, God with us. Understand, we're blessed when we realize just how much of him we need. That to feel discouraged is not something we've done wrong, but to realize that he walks with us in that, that he loves us to walk with us in that, that relationship with him is where he wants us to be. And when we realize just how much of him we need, he says, then you have everything you could possibly imagine, the kingdom of heaven, not just when we get there, but now the kingdom of heaven. Now, Emmanuel. I'd like to sing a Christmas song with you, if that'd be all right, as we close this morning. Um, It's an old one. Um, It's one that has a lot of weird and strange words in it for a lot of people because it is so old, but the song is, O come, O come, Emmanuel. Now, the song says, and ransom captive Israel. I'm wondering if maybe this morning, you're Israel, and the song's about us. And maybe you're captive in some discouragement this morning. Maybe there's something that's holding you down and you have not truly realized the God with us that exists today in your situation. We're going to sing two of the verses of it, but I would like you to make this your prayer this morning. Would you sing with me? Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. 
Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appears. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to Come, our day spring, come and cheer our spirits by your advent here. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to fly. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. So may we be people of joy this week. Let joy live in our hearts, and may we share the joy of Christ with all that we meet. As you go out into the world, may we share joy, hope, and peace with all that we encounter. Thank you so much. Have a good week. Be blessed.